0: Welcome
1: to the fourth episode of the podcast. This is your proprietor, Tony Ortega, coming to you from an undisclosed location, deep inside the interior of the Earth's crust, otherwise known as the Underground Bunker. This week, we had another terrific narrative from former Scientology auditor, Bruce Hines. We've had several really well-written pieces from him, and this time he took us into Scientology's secretive international headquarters, in Base and its tyrannical leader, David Miscavige. And once again, Bruce does a fantastic job taking us into the mind of a Sea Org member, working with total dedication for this totalitarian organization. Uh, Hey, Bruce, thank you so much for for joining me. And once again, uh, you've given the Underground Bunker a fascinating narrative from your time in Scientology. This week, uh, we learned a lot about the difference between int and gold in base and gold base and let me tell you that's that's so helpful cuz i've always said that the overall place is int base and i knew that gold referred to golden era production but you helped uh, explain that the that it that road that bisects the place kind of helps define that and the stuff north of the road where david Miscavige lived was the was more considered int and the part that's south of the
0: road where the Sydney castle was, was more considered gold. Yeah, that's right. The, uh, you know, if you could drive by the place, there's a big sign that says golden era productions. And I think that was sort of a, uh, you know, partly public relations thing or the public, the public facing like this base is where they make movies and the fact that that was where all of Scientology was managed from and controlled, that was sort of hidden.
1: And the other thing, Bruce, of course, is it's so hierarchical, right? I mean, everything in, in Scientology is a pecking order and you're aware of it all the time. You always know where you are in relation to other Scientologists, especially when you get busted. And that that was reinforced even with the way the place was laid out. Yeah, Absolutely. And uh, so most of the time you spent on the north side, or you were in base, and and you only were busted down to gold for a couple of weeks, but it was so memorable; it's still vivid in your mind, like thirty years later.
0: Yeah, I mean there were, I mean there's so many when I look back, just bizarre things that I went through in my twenty four years in the Sea Org, or even before that, the six years when I wasn't in the Sea Org but was still a Scientologist. But um, yeah, those two weeks, it just like was one thing after another that was like, what? And then it was suddenly, it was just over. And they're always back on the RPF.
1: But I think one of the things that you've done for us in these stories, not just this one, is you've given us such a good understanding of what it was like to be in that situation and see these hierarchies and these sort of impossible things that people were, were asked to do. And um, I mean, you know, and also what I always enjoy about talking with you and about your stories is, I mean, you're such a smart guy. I mean, you teach physics, right? I mean, this is, I know people sometimes struggle understanding how someone can be sucked into something like this, but I mean, you're a very intelligent person. And, and this was something that you had dedicated your life to.
0: Yeah. And, I still struggle with that a bit because, well, I don't know, I was, I think I was always a little bit gullible about some things, but nonetheless, to get to- totally sucked in, um, one thing that's sort of interesting to me is that, okay, yeah, I have some intelligence. I don't think I'm the smartest guy in the world, but yes, I am. do research in physics and teach it and stuff. Um, but that intelligence, that ability to Uh, sort of put together facts and be logical, that was one reason why I was sort of a technical expert or considered so while I was in, because I could look at the internal writings and the internal logic, forget how crazy it is when you look at it from the outside, and put it all together and say, well, this is what should happen, or this is what's right, or this is what's wrong. Um, my, in my experience, so many of those people at the int base were really smart people. You know, like you mentioned Mark Headley. Obviously, he's a very capable guy. He's, um, and he was in and he totally bought it. And uh, when, Once we realize we don't want to be there anymore, we're out pretty quick. But um, that whole intelligence thing, I, I sort of have learned that intelligence doesn't isn't something that keeps you from falling for the, the mind control.
1: And Scientology has a way once you make that initial decision that there's something there that is good for your life and that you think might help the world, it's, it, it's designed to kind of keep pushing you, pushing you into that so that it gets harder and harder to then remember what it was like before you came up with that. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I, I'll never forget uh, Paul Haggis in going clear talking about how the criticism, the protesters—all that only helps cement your your idea, you know, that we must be doing something right to save the world if so many people are trying to stop us.
0: Oh yeah, that was definitely part of the. It's um, a funny. really good way to put it, but that was part of the whole indoctrination. The whole ideology was that there are people, particularly media governments, um, intelligence agencies, and obviously psychiatry and psychology, that want, they're dedicated to Scientology failing. Because the argument is that if Scientology succeeds, all those people will lose their support and livelihood. And so they have to keep Scientology down. So you expect these, uh, the criticisms and the protests, and the, the family members who don't agree with what you're doing. It's, it's all built into it. So here you were, you, you
1: you dedicated your life to it, but you were being punished for a while. And, and that's when you met this Vibka Hansen, right. a woman from Germany who was also in the RPF with you, the, the Scientology prison program. And, and one thing I wanted to ask you about on that was the two of you ended up getting out at the same time and going to gold. Um, and then you mentioned that, she once they kind of let her out of there, they realized they had to treat her carefully. And the reason you gave was it because Germany was actually making you know the orgs that had been under her in Germany had been actually doing very well and making a lot of money. But I, I I wanted to ask you, wasn't there the wasn't this also the period when Germany was cracking down on Scientology and the U.S. government got involved and basically Germany was one big PR
0: flap? Yeah. Uh, yes, I think the more um, you know, I think what happened with Vipka is a lot of what started the whole government crackdown in Germany. Ah, uh-huh. I mean, I hadn't heard about it prior to that, and then um, it was actually in Hamburg where Vipka was head of the organization there, where this uh, government group was set up. And um, they started investigating, but I think it, a lot of it was because of this documentary that got made about Vika, and that documentary went into um, you know the practices of the RPF and what they do, and I think Jesse Prince was on it, and, um, some maybe some other people, but anyway, this my understanding is is that the government crackdowns came more after. All of that happened with Wipka.
1: And that's the famous flyovers, right? That It was the exactly. German crew that was flying over in base and was causing so much trouble then. Yes, exactly. That's a famous incident. Uh, the, other, the other thing that struck me from this week's piece is... Um, uh, so you described uh, getting out of the RPF with Vipka, and you both went to Gold, and, and you got a job at Cine Castle where they make all these slick films for the, for the church, and you were asked to refurbish some old lights. They, they, had, they were spending lavishly on the castle, which you can see to this day there, um, but they were for some reason trying to save some money refurbishing some old lights, and of course lighting is very important when you're making films. And when you were sandblasting some some of these things, David Miscavige happened to walk by. And I love the way you've portrayed. you've portrayed this now in several of your pieces. how terrorizing it could be if David Miscavige happened to walk by while you were working and took a look at what you were doing, and he actually offered some advice about you should get finer sand or something. and how 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 terrorizing that was. Because then it puts you in a quandary, like, oh, I, got, I better do what he wants.
0: Oh, yeah. You know, it's it's considered an order. Um, it I can't remember if he did it right then, but I know a lot of times someone would go around, and including his sort of personal secretary, who would either record the things he said or keep notes of what he said. And those things that he directed or suggested... Um, they were orders, and they would be kept track of. And you could talk to anybody on the base, I bet you, and say when you knew David Miscavige was coming into your area, or if he suddenly did, how they felt about it or what their reaction was. And I guarantee you it would be similar to mine. The sheer terror. <laughs> yeah, because you, well, you it's such a whim. You could be in serious shit in two seconds. But see, the
1: other reason why I wanted to bring that up again is that, you know, the church today insists that David Miscavige is not the sort of day-to-day, hands-on guy. They claim he's this ecclesiastical leader, like he's the pope or something of Scientology and they want to try to counter this exa- this image of him as this terrorizing micromanager
0: but that's what you saw up close oh there's there is no question everything that happened on that base and at flag and probably many other places they were directly a, a result of his micromanagement and um, do you think there's a, do you think there's any chance that today he's not a micromanager I don't think there's any chance at all. Mm-hmm. You know, I've wondered what what is what even happens at the end base these days when he's not there. What do they do? Um, there used to be a whole organizational structure there, Command, it was this Commodore's Messenger Organization International, and that included the Watchdog Committee, and there was the Executive Strata, and they were all there. We were all there in this one building called Del Sol, and. That was what was supposed to manage it, and RTC was just supposed to be sort of a policing thing to make sure that they're doing it right. Um, but th- though you know those organizations, I don't know if they exist at all, or if they do, they don't do much because he took over managing everything. And and you say you were at Flag Two and saw him there. Oh yeah, I mean it was mainly. I mean, there were a couple times early on. I didn't even really know who he was, like around the nineteen eighty-eighty-one time period. But then later, um, I would get sent, a lot of people in those upper orgs, would get sent to flag on a mission to try to correct something or deal with something. And sometimes he was there at the same time. And so I um, interacted with him there as well. And
1: just for the folks that aren't, completely up on their Scientology lingo. When we say flag, we're referring uh, to the uh, uh, spiritual Mecca, they call it in Clearwater, Florida. Uh, The base, the base, int base gold base that we were talking about earlier is in in California, about 90 miles east of Los Angeles. That's a secretive place that Dave lived for a long time. Flag is different because it's not just a Sea Org place and where upper level teachings is going on. But it's where public come and there's no outer wall. I mean, you know, if Bruce, if you and I were in Clearwater right now, we could walk right down the middle, you know, right through Fort Harrison Avenue, right through the middle of the flag
0: land base. It's it's an odd place. Yeah, we could. I guarantee you, though, some security <laughs> guards would appear. Within that's true.
1: <laughs> that's true. It's an odd place because it's so important to Scientology, but it's kind of out in the open. Yes, and, uh, and 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 the public come there. It's not just the Sea Org, but the wealthy publics who come to get upper level auditing are there. And and David has decided apparently to switch the sort of main uh, central location, uh, well, at least his location, from Int Base out to Flag. In recent years, Scientology's own publications have acknowledged it. What do you think it's like for him there now, based on what you saw? with him there years ago. What it's like for the
0: Sea Org members there? What it's
1: like for Sea Org members, what it's like for him, what it's like for the public now that Dave is apparently located, living either close, either on the base or close to it and shows up on Friday night graduations.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm sure the Sea Org members there get terrorized. I have no doubt. You know, sometimes, not in the view of the public. They have other buildings there where um, sort of the management type activities happen, um, besides the Fort Harrison Hotel. And for him, it's you know, gosh, I can't really make sense of it. Part of it might be that um, since technology is is improved so much in the past twenty five years, you know, he can he can do anything remotely. It's That's like true. working working from home, sort of. So right. he can maybe just feels comfortable there. Um, For a while, he was living near author services in Hollywood or he had a place there. At least he would be there. Now he's in Florida. Maybe he likes the beaches. I don't know. Um, We did, we did actually
1: get a report uh, from a pretty good source. Never got it confirmed independently, but we got a decent report from a source that he was spotted Jogging on the beach in (laughs) Clearwater, really? So so may, but I, but I think it would be tough on him. At least, I mean, I don't feel sorry for him, but I think it would be a little bit tough because, uh, you know, uh, servers—he's got process servers looking for him, and, and of course, the media would like to spot him. So I don't, I don't imagine he gets out much.
0: Yeah, that's true. You know, if he's jogging on the beach, he—I'm sure there are people there with an eye out for process servers, for example, or for reporters.
1: I mean, yeah, there must be, I, I, you know, I, again, I didn't get that confirmed. Pretty good source. Um, and uh, so, but I think he does live there now. And um, I, I think you're right. I think those Sea Org members there are probably getting terrorized on a daily basis. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I'm sure. Another another key takeaway I took from your piece this week was your astonishment at seeing Mark Yeager and Ray Midoff sent to the RPF. And this was, this was years before they ended up in the hole uh, where as far as we know, they're still to this day. But um, I mean, there was a time when these guys seemed like they were friends, All you know, David Miscavige and Midoff and Yeager and all these guys, right? Oh,
0: definitely. Before uh, Mark Yeager got in trouble, um, he would go up. You know, he was, in a building called Del Sol. At this time he was the commanding officer of CMO Int. I'm sorry for all the acronyms, I don't get around them. And then um, he would actually go up to either an office or something and play video games with Miscavige. And he, he and Miss and Jaeger came up through the ranks of the Commodore's Messenger Org. They were both started when they were really young and they worked their way up and they dealt with each other they knew each other and they were friends. Um, before he Mark Yeager actually arrived to the RPF site out at Happy Valley, he there's this you know I don't know how well this is known, but he was put in this area which was referred to as the swamp. Now it's this area on the north side of the property, but it's towards the west where um, there weren't management buildings there. There was something called the Old Gilman House where they used to put sick people when they were in isolation. Anyway, there's an area where it was sort of a low point and everything would, the rains and stuff when they did come would drain into this area. And it was like, you know, it was like a bog. And he had, uh, Mark Yeager had to like go in and try to clean it out by himself and wade through this stuff. He was treated really, really meanly by Miscavige. It's funny. I think about it. I haven't read that online about Mark Yeager's ordeals in the swamp.
1: And what, and they were playing a video game? Or was this like a console, like a Donkey Kong? Or was it like a...
0: You know, I don't know. Because I didn't know much about video games. When I, I when I heard this, it was actually when I was on the RPF. And I heard Mark Yeager talking about it. Um... Because I was with him a lot um, after I went back to the RPF, and he was still there. And I don't, I don't know what kind. Of, it could have been like, well, let's see, Pong was in the seventies. I was something much, you know. I, I bet you there was some sort of console, but I don't really know. And uh,
1: the old Gilman House has been demolished. By the way, it's gone. But that West Side, yeah, there are some interesting stories. Um, You know, there were also some uh, shipping containers there. Mm -hmm. And uh, Gary Moorhead told me that one or more of these shipping containers was filled from floor to ceiling with expensive liquor, like (laughs) (laughs) top-end bottles of whiskey and stuff. And he said that it was because Hubbard at some point had some kind of a policy or something about how, you know, one of the things Scientology was looking forward to was for some kind of civilization collapse to happen. And then the world would be rebuilt uh, with Scientology. And so they took that seriously, that there was going to be some kind of apocalypse. And Hubbard had said something about, you need to have real goods to trade because paper money won't be worth anything. And so they had these shipping containers filled with the top end whiskeys and things uh, for that day. Uh, God, <laughs> <Not> that's <similar. laughs> so a couple. Yeah, so a couple of things I'm looking forward to when this when this place goes belly up is is to see uh, that liquor get pulled out and see how much it gets auctioned for. But the other thing is what you said is. Those crazy daily reports where they've been following Dave around, writing down
0: everything he says. Yeah. God, that's just nuts. And there was this computer program. Um, it was an internal computer. Like, we had internal emails. They couldn't go out. But we could send, like, an email from to someone on another post. And also on that, you would get... Um, Reminders of the orders that you had received and what the deadline was. That was the TM. The, you know, what's the TM on this order, which stood for Time Machine, uh, and these programs would track all of this. You know, he would say, "We should. Do, you need to do this. We need to do this. you do this." It would all get put into this program, and then this program would sort of um, send these. Orders to individual staff members and say you have until such and such a time to get this done, and then the computer would automatically like remind you. And if you didn't get it done on time, you'd get first you'd get in a little chip, an ethics chip, which is just a note to your ethics file, and then you could get a knowledge report, and then you could get a court of ethics. And it would get hard. You know, the uh, consequences of not carrying out this order would get worse and worse. It was it was pretty crazy. And
1: uh, I remember, well, when you say that, I also think about the fact people often ask me, okay, Tony, these SEARC workers work around the clock, 365 days a year. For years, they don't see their family. But what do they do? And, and when you're mentioning that about the time machine keeping up on you and everything, I still get that idea. There was just so much pressure um, and, and so much terrorizing but it's still hard to describe what exactly were you doing? Mm-hmm.
0: And that's What, you, what do you point? say
1: when people ask you that?
0: <laughs> a lot of meaningless work. Um, worrying about fake emergencies. Um, so it, it would depend on your post. So I had a job most of the time I was there where I was supposed to, Review the application of the technology, auditing and training. Technology refers when, in Scientology when you say technology, you mean auditing and training. And um, and I would get people's auditing records. I would get videos of sessions, and I would review these, and I would and I would find out what's wrong, and then I would send out correction orders. Um, so I would spend, you know, I might spend four hours straight going through, um, say, five folders that I'd gotten from um, FLAG, from Clearwater. And they were the folders of a public person, particularly if they were a wealthy public person, who had expressed dissatisfaction or weren't totally happy with what happened. And so I'd have to dig through these things. And, you know, each one is about two inches, three inches thick. And the whole pile might be a foot, foot and a half high and have to go through and look at all the records and say, oh, look at he asked the wrong question here or the case supervisor ordered the wrong process here or something. So that's how a lot of my time was spent. Or I'd be looking at a person auditing and I would say, oh, his delivery of that command was not right or he... Missed an instant read on the e meter. Um, that's what I would do. But someone who, say, worked in Cine, they would be, i like a, one day when this brief time when I was in Cine, we had to attach plugs to cables. And so, you know, you take them apart and you strip the wires and you put, screw in the plugs. And there were a whole bunch of these to do. But it's stuff like that. Um, the set makers would um, someone would make a whole plan, and they look like blueprints. And then you start building walls out of one by three wood, and you you put them all together, and then you put the skin on it. And it's it's, it's a pretty elaborate process, but you know everyone's busy doing something that is supposed to be their post. It's uh, it. <laughs>
1: Look, they, they, they have some talented people there. They, they some of these videos, I mean, what they're trying to convey is often kind of ridiculous, but the, the, the production values can be very high on some of these Scientology films.
0: Yeah, they, they do. They, they do know what they're doing, and they, they make uh, good sets. The, oh, the, the guys in, in Cine that build the sets, they also build the sets for the international events. And I don't know if you—I don't know what they're like these days, but back in the olden days, there'd be a huge arch that would go over the stage, you know, like twenty feet off the floor, with these big pillars that would hold it up, and there'd be all this ornate um, scrolls and wings and stuff that would be made. And I don't know, but anyway, they're talented. They know what they're doing, and they have—they've had a lot of work at it.
1: it and everything has to be. Okay, by Miscavige, every step, right?
0: Yep. Like, here, here's, sir, here's the our proposed design for the next event. Uh, oh no, that sucks. Who came up with this? Okay, that person's going to ethics. I want another proposal on my desk by tomorrow at nine a.m. or something like that. That's the kind of thing you would get.
1: So the fact that whatever creative steps might have been taken. Ultimately, what they end up with at the IS Gala always looks like a Nuremberg
0: rally. That's on Miscavige, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. 100% <laughs> a Nuremberg rally. That's funny.
1: <laughs> I mean, I kind of missed those. We haven't had any true international events in a couple of years because of the pandemic. They did have a birthday event in Clearwater this last March, but it... And they called it an international event. But it was restricted to every, people who were already at FLAG. They weren't yeah. flying people in. They're still not. And I don't I don't know what's going to happen with the IAS. Did you, as a Sea worker at the base, did you get a chance to actually attend some of these international events? Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Um, well, the main one that we all had to attend was the 1993 announcement that the IRS had granted tax exemption. The war was, is over. The war yeah, is over. That was the biggest thing ever. Um, but there would be, like in LA, um, they used, used to have a lot of events at the shrine. And then they couldn't get enough people to attend because it would look too empty. But um, yeah, we would go to that. And we would be ordered to go because we would be bodies in seats. And we wouldn't dress in our uniforms. That We would dress in like, a suit and tie kind of thing and go and sit there.
1: Yeah, that was, that's an amazing one. Uh, October 1993, David Miscavige announced that the war with the IRS was over and that Scientology had basically gotten everything they wanted. tax exempt status for virtually all their organizations. No, no question. This was David to this day is David Miscavige's biggest accomplishment. For the Church yeah. of Scientology, it makes it, you know, virtually
0: impregnable even today. Yeah. There's something I think it's kind of funny. So the production of those events, you know, they have several cameras operating simultaneously. And, um, you know, they have music that goes with it. And there's actually a trailer, which is a control trailer where you can switch from one camera to another. And that's what would go to the feed that was... Either being recorded, they would make videos of it, or sometimes that feed would be sent someplace for someone to watch remotely. But um, so whoever was in the control room, you know, they're switching and they show the balloons or whatever, and then they show Miss Cabbage, and then they'll show some image of Elrond Hubbard. And then, but the key point was when Miss Cabbage said, "The war is over," and whoever was operating the the cameras switched off of him and went to something else right when he said it. And I can't remember who that was, but if you look at the, uh, I looked at the video later and it's true. You don't actually see him delivering that key line and uh, whoever did it, I know they got in big trouble.
1: (laughs) They denied COB his moment of victory. That's terrible. Yeah, exactly. Well, he's gotten his revenge because he makes them watch that over and over again every year. <laughs> oh, God. Because he knows it's his biggest victory. Yeah. But, you know, getting back to this thing about Jaeger and Midoff, again, what struck me about it was I mean, I think Mark Hadley told me at one time
0: they were like bowling every week. They were like, i I, I could believe that. They were like buddies. Yeah. You know, so for, from 1987, and that's when I arrived to the base, until 1993, the three of them all worked up in RTC. Um, Ray Midoff was called IG Tech. Mark Yeager was IG Admin. And, um, of course, David Miscavige was uh, COB. Marty Rathwin was IG Ethics. So those are the three main things of Scientology. years. Ethics, tech, and admin. And then there was a guy who was just called the IG, Greg Wilhair. So those five guys, they were like the highest people. And from then until 1993, when the shit hit the fan about, I don't know, it was like poor tech delivery at Flag or something, you know, those guys were up there for those six years. And I'm, I'm sure they did stuff like that.
1: But systematically, over the years, between the mid-90s and the early 2000s, Miscavige, I guess, just became so paranoid, even his closest friends he began to suspect.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. Some he, sort of weird sociopathic something or another. He couldn't trust anybody. Yeah. Or not even his own wife. Right. How, what kind of interactions did you have with Shelley? Oh, I had a few. Um, she was... You know, she could act like a hard bitch, but she was actually pretty nice. Um, Okay, here's a really weird one. (laughs) Some of the stuff. So I am, um, this was during a time period, probably 1994. And I was in Los Angeles a lot. And most people didn't get the freedom I had where I would go drive around Los Angeles and audit some of these high-profile people. Anyway, during that time, um, there was a woman who was a, a staff member in OSA, and she had a brain aneurysm, and she died. Like oh, She huh. came into work one day and, um, with a cup of coffee and set it down and sat down in her chair and then just keeled over. Yikes. So it was a pretty bad um, aneurysm that burst in her brain. But she didn't die instantly. They took her to the hospital, and um, she was on life support. Um, Her husband, oh God, what was his name? He was a well-known guy. Maybe it'll come to me. He was also in OSA, and and a big PR guy. Uh, OSA, Office of Special Affairs. Um, And so he basically had to decide whether to pull the plug on her. Now, I was there as her quote-unquote minister. And so I'm there at the hospital, and he's there, and um, he thinks about it. And they had determined that she was totally brain dead. She could still breathe, and her heart was still beating, you know, because of the life support. And so finally, he had to make the decision that they were, he was going to take her off life support. And so I, as her minister, had to be there uh, in the room while they did this. It's the most bizarre thing I've ever done. And so th- this doctor came in, and so he just sort of like literally pulls plugs out of the wall, and he walks out. And then I'm there with this woman, and I watched her slowly, like the breathing didn't stop instantly, and like it went on for a few minutes. And It was just really strange until finally, you know, she was like pronounced officially dead. Okay, so I do that. Um, Then the next day or so, I get contacted by Shelly. And she wants to know like, okay, so what happened there? What was going on? And the reason is, is that when somebody, a Org member would die, sometimes they would uh, publish a little memorial about them. They would write about the person and what they did, and it would come out and it would get sent around all Seiyorg members, and um, or you know particularly areas where that person had been and that that knew her. And so this is a little embarrassing, but uh, I'll say it anyway. And so I said, well, you know, I, I kept in communication with her as she was leaving her body, because you know if you're OT, you say you can do this, and. And you sort of imagine that you are actually communicating with someone, but I don't think you really are. But, um, and so I said, well, she was, she felt very uh, upset, you know, like she'd let the team down and she was leaving. and it, But she was going to be back. She was going to come and she was going to get another body and then be in this year again in her next lifetime. And so anyway, I said stuff like that to Shelly. And um, she was going, oh, okay, yeah. Okay. And she was really nice about it. And at one point I said, like, well, you know, I don't really know um, if I'm being accurate here, but this is sort of what I think. And so she sent me for correction. It's called a cramming order. She sent me to cramming. That's when you go in and you have to restudy materials that you should know. Um, It's an official order you get, and you have to go do this to the cramming officer. Um, Anyway... And so she said, uh, she was correcting me on the fact of some of these things that have been written about how you know you spirits are you know they're Satans and that you can communicate with them or something I don't know, but um, anyway, that was one interaction I had. she actually called me on the phone and I told her this stuff
1: so she kind of she kind of punished you for Maybe being not precise with your language in regards to this?
0: No, for doubting that I could actually communicate with a dead
1: person. Oh, for for (laughs) expressing some doubt about what you thought you had experienced.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Wow. That's, mm. well, I have heard this from many other people that, you know, she could be hard as nails like anybody in the Sea Org. Uh, uh, and some people to this day are, are, are not really complimentary about her, but many others have told me they felt she was most of the time she was a, uh, mediating force so that Dave would come in, cause all kinds of havoc, bust people, kick asses, even slug people and leave. And then she would be there to kind of try to, to, you know, calm people down, make sure they were Okay. And doing what she could to kind of like lessen Dave's uh, damage.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I've saw it myself. And yeah, she was that way. Yeah. And she could be really, you know, she could just, she could be really nice. One, there was a time that went away after a while, but early on when I was up there, they would actually celebrate Christmas. And you'd get Christmas off, and everyone would go to, I talked about this building called MCI, Masquer Canyon Inn, where we had meals and stuff. There'd be a Christmas tree and presents under the tree. and That's when COB would get just obscene gifts from some of the organizations around it, trying to curry his favor or something. But um, I, I remember one morning I walked in and she was there and she was as nice as could be. Oh, hi, Bruce. Merry Christmas. I hope everything's going well. You know, that's how she she had that side to her.
1: Right. Yeah. Didn't you have like a little bit of your pay docked for several weeks leading up to Christmas to help pay for Dave's gift?
0: Absolutely. You definitely. We definitely (laughs) did. (laughs) And that was because that was the organization that you know I was in CMON. CMON had to give a really good gift. They you know they couldn't let ASI Office Services give a better gift than. So there was was like this competition. and yes, our pay would be knocked. Jeez. Yeah, and I've heard that if he wasn't happy with the gift,
1: oh, it was really bad after that.
0: <laughs> I, I, heard, I, I heard around those. But. Well,
1: I heard from a, a CEO person that they had they had really saved up one year and had bought him this very expensive BMW or something, thinking that they were giving him the greatest gift ever. And he just thought it was a joke or something and thought it wasn't the kind of car he wanted. And it was just heads, heads rolled, you know. <laughs> Maybe that was after your time. I don't know.
0: Well, I remember one year he got a uh, Miata, a Mitsubishi Miata. And it looked like a cool little sports car, but I guess they weren't that good. I seem to re- remember hearing that he wasn't happy with that. But I, don't, I don't know if that's the same incident.
1: Could be, could be. And I was just, I mean, you know, it's been years, you know, and, and people's memories, but, but uh, yeah, I mean, but the important thing is that these people are making 50 bucks a week when they get paid at all. And yet money is taken out of their pay so that Miscavige will have nice birthday and Christmas gifts. Yeah. Jeez.
0: Incredible. Yeah. It is just amazing. It is amazing. And, you know, what,
1: What I I think you've written about this before, but what are some of the things that finally started to crack through for you and started to make you wonder
0: about how you were spending your time? Well, you know, the very, okay, I guess the very first thing was right when I got initially busted from my position in CMO Int and sent to the RPF. So that was in 1995. And I've talked about this on uh, Nightline and stuff. um, Where that was when Ms. Cabbage came in and he hit me. I know he hit other people way worse, but he did hit me and I got in trouble. And then um, I was put At that particular time, the RPF didn't exist out at Happy Valley yet. So I I was put with some other people who were also in trouble at the far west end of the property. So it was probably close to where those um, shipping containers were that Gary Moorhead was talking about. Um, And so when I'm there, I'm like, okay, this is just horrible. I want out. And I looked for ways I could escape. I was going to try to run down the road or something. and of course, you're in, surrounded by a barbed wire fence and there's motion sensors on it. And I was trying to picture how I could still maybe, you know, climb up on something and jump over to a pole. Anyway, I was just trying to figure out how I might be able to do that. So that was probably the very first time when I thought, hmm, this place is crazy. But then, it, interestingly, as you go through the paces of the handling, quote unquote, you're getting, you start to sort of calm down. It's and start to toe the line again. Then, but then, then you wrote, uh, and, and then of course you wrote about the 9-11 thing, that that also helped. Yes. But before that, um, the, the 9-11 thing was was huge. That was probably, that's what put me over the edge To in terms of I'm out. Um, while I was on the RPF, and it was in 1996, and I was this guy who, Knew a lot about um, the tech of Scientology and what Ellen Hubbard had written about it, and the Golden Age of Tech came out. And the initial, initial uh, bulletins, <clears throat> the, before they were actually issued to the public, they sent out to the RPF, and we were supposed we were sort of like a trial group. We were supposed to use this these things. Um, in our auditing, what we did on our twin when we are there at the RPF trying to get rehabilitated. And there were things in there that had come from David Miscavige and some people that he had compiling, putting this stuff together, that I thought was was wrong. And there were particular, particularly some things about the e-meter, about what um, the certain reactions on the e-meter looked like and what you should look for but there were also some procedural things about how you audit somebody and I thought they were wrong Mm -hmm. and I actually would say it and in retrospect I think that's maybe one reason why I ended up spending a long time on the RPF because the fact that I voiced disagreements about this stuff that showed that I was really off the rails and they really had to Um, keep me and, you know, work on me to get me to see right or something. But anyway, that was the earliest point. Um, When I, after the 9-11 thing and I saw how the people there to help, besides the Sea Org members I was with, um, all sorts, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people there at Ground Zero trying to help out.
1: And let me just remind our listeners if they haven't seen that piece in a while, and they should, it's a fantastic piece. Uh, I've I actually first mentioned in a Daily Beast piece, uh, I mentioned it about you, but then you explained it more in a piece you wrote yourself for The Bunker. You were literally on the roof at the New York org helping repair the roof of something when the attacks began and, and that suddenly all hell had broken loose and... Uh, you then later that day or the next day found yourself down at Ground Zero trying to help out with the first responders. Uh, Scientology and Scientology was crowing about it—the fact that we're making a difference, we're helping. But your reaction was that one—I well, thought one of the most interesting reactions you had was you saw that actually the people you were watching were providing real help to each other. And these were people you had been indoctrinated to believe were wogs, non Scientologists, and therefore they were
0: no use at all. Yeah, exactly. It's fascinating. It really, really struck me. So then you, so tell me. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. We're going to talk about that. Yeah, and well, then um, I saw that, and then you know, it did still take me a year and a half to finally believe. Mm Because there's a lot to overcome to get out of there. A lot of mental blocks and barriers and things. And real physical blocks, too. Um, But when I first decided, okay, I'm gone. And I, I, you know, did my uh, escape up to Port Authority to get on a bus and get out of there. Um, When I told myself and I told some other people that I uh, knew, like I had some nieces were Scientologists, that the reason I I was gone was because I thought that David Miscavige had um, altered the tech. He had he had squirreled. They use the word squirrel, you know. He had squirreled the tech. And so that goes back to that experience with the golden age of tech while I was still on the RPF. Um, it didn't take me long to progress through the idea that no, it's all bullshit. It wasn't just what David Miscavige did.
1: How long did that take? Because that's, that's different for everyone. I know it can take a long time for some people.
0: Well, let's see. It was probably, I bet you it was two years. Two years, okay. You know, gradu- gradually. Mm-hmm. And um, there were a couple things that really helped on that. One was, um, well, a big, big thing. You know, when I was first out, I still would not go on the internet to read about Scientology because I still had the idea that it was all lies. All the criticism was was lies. Yeah. You know, it was was put there by government agents or something um, to make Scientology look bad. And then, so finally, I, okay, I'm just going to do it. Um, By then, I had my own computer, which was a big deal. And so I, you know, punch in Scientology and Google. And, and I start to read and it's very eye-opening. And what's interesting about that sort of thing is you read about something that someone else said and it's something that they experienced where they were. And then it would resonate with me because I had experienced something very similar where I was. One of the mental traps is that when you're in and you see something that is just weird, you think it's a very isolated thing that, and you know, the rest of the Scientology world was all great, but there's just this weird thing maybe one bad guy, or maybe. Um, and so you think it's limited to you. When you get on the internet and you see, no, it was everywhere, that's a big, it's a big uh, eye opening thing. Um, and then, I anyway, mean, there were a number of other things that progressed with me. I finally decided to Google my own name. Oh, remember, you know, this was. Uh, you know, I just thought, oh, I wonder, what have I been in my own name? And I first of all, I see that there are really a lot of Bruce Hineses in the world <laughs> that I have no idea about. But, um, and then I Googled my name with Scientology, and then all this stuff popped up. And one of the things I saw was something that Chuck Beatty had written, and he had mentioned me. And Chuck and I were good friends on the RPF, and also before the RPF. And we still are, we still are in contact. And I talked. Talk, I ended up calling him, and he told me that um, about several other people who had gotten on and had posted things on the RPF or had talked to talked to media, and that there wasn't any um, backlash from the church. And that's one of the big fears. You think they're going to come after you if you say anything? Anyway, it wasn't long after that where I agreed to talk to. A guy from the Washington Post, named Richard Leiby. Richard Leiby, one. one of the best. And um, he was doing an article about the the uh, the weird vaults with all the, out in New Mexico, and, right? And I knew something about it because I'd been to um, the one uh, rim of the world, or I can't think of the name. Of the Twin name, Peaks. One. You've been
1: up there, really?
0: Oh yeah, I it didn't was know that. I was actually in the vault. Um, I, I just went and visited for a couple of days. When I went there as a technical expert to see if they were doing the auditing and training of their staff. Ground. Oh wow! Um, but anyway, so because of that, Richard Libby talked to me, and then he is, he did this um, this article, and my name was in it, and Chuck Beatty's name was in it. That so that was the first time, and when you make that step, you you know when I did that, oh, I have now spoken to the media. Um, critically of Scientology. That's like the biggest suppressive act you can do. And uh, so anyway, I was knew I was totally out um, at that point, like 100%.
1: And have they tried to harass you very much?
0: No, um, not. They haven't. Um, I, I've wondered about that. Um, you know, they they put up a website about me, and they say all these things that aren't true. But um, other than that, not really. And my conclusion is, is they just don't have the manpower anymore. They've lost so many people; they they cannot um, muster the people to try to do something.
1: I agree with you. I think they tend to save what resources they have to aim at certain targets. Yeah. Uh, Rama scavage was just you know absorbing so much of that for several years. And of course, Mike and Leah. Um, yeah. But that's good. I'm glad they're not messing with you because you've been an invaluable source. Yeah,
0: I, I'm glad too. And um, there was one thing. My my, I've mentioned talked to my wife about this. And early on, um, people like when people would want to interview me because I audited Nicole Kim, Kidman, right. and I had done this. And so that was you know these were where people that were interested in the celebrities than about Scientology. Always. But I said early on, like, okay, I was an auditor and I was told things in confidence in those sessions. And just because those people trusted me, I am not going to tell people what they told me in those sessions. And um, so my wife thinks like, well, they knew you weren't going to really give anything that could be damaging. You know, I could talk about life at int or whatever. But that wasn't really new news for for anything.
1: So the fact that you are actually still observing the auditor's code years after you left um, not only speaks to your credibility, because even if it was all garbage, even if they abused you, uh, Nicole Kidman spoke to you in confidence. And uh, you, you are still honoring that.
0: Yeah, and it's not so much. It is, you know, there is something about that in the auditor's code but it's more my own personal integrity about if someone tells me something and they're you know they think I'm trusted and you know that I'm not going to go blab to someone else about it I'm I, I'm not going to
1: Well look you've you've proven to be a man of integrity and uh Scientology isn't. I mean, Scientology lies about itself. It lies about us. Um, And uh, this is one of the reasons why I've enjoyed speaking with you. And and I'm so grateful for the pieces you've written is we not only, not only do you produce a credible description of what happened there, you have such interesting insights about the mindset there. You know, you've talked about how they broke, they just broke you down. You know, I mean, somebody that the the very way of thinking inside Scientology is something they have
0: control over. Yeah, it's true.
1: Well, listen, Bruce, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And uh, I hope you keep writing for us because you've just done some absolutely terrific pieces for the bunker. And I know our readers appreciate it.
0: Well, thank you so much. It's my pleasure to be able to spend this time talking with you. And I do have... These things that I plan to write about, they sort of come to me. It's therapeutic for me. It helps me to connect dots, put things together when I sit down and try to put it on paper. So there will be some things. I'm not sure exactly when, but some, sometime soon.
1: We look forward to it. All right, Bruce. Thank you very
0: much. Thank you.